Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. And, and it shouldn't come as a surprise to us because we see God doing the work of reconciliation all through Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separates us. See, the the gospel is, is about more than just going to heaven when we die, right? That's part of it. But it's about Jesus creating a miraculous new family. It's, it's a sledgehammer that breaks down the wall of hostility, not just between us and God, but between us and each other. And what we see in Joseph's story is a foreshadow of this. It's, it's a foreshadow of God's commitment to his work of reconciliation. It's a new way of being together. Because in the story of Joseph, not only does God reconcile Joseph and his family, but he also recognizes reconciles two people, Egyptians and Hebrews. And in today's chapter, we've been walking through the, the, the story of Joseph chapter by chapter. Today we come to Genesis chapter 46. And in Genesis chapter 46, we're going to catch a glimpse of some of the hostility, hatred, and, and racial fragmentation that was bubbling underneath the surface, the surface of Joseph's story. And it's going to leak out a little bit in Genesis chapter 46. And, and I have to say that with the recent hate crime shootings, this last week in Buffalo and Laguna Woods, that this chapter that we're going to cover today of Joseph's story carries some extra weight, right? Because for, for, for black people this morning, um, it's a little bit harder to go to the grocery store and to go to church. And it's probably going to be for a while right? Maybe not because they're scared of it happening to them, but just going into the grocery store, just going into church like Laguna Woods, right? Just going there, it's going to feel different for a while. And so the, the, the chapter we're going to cover today um, actually is going to unpack some of this. But before we get to chapter 46, let me first give a quick summary of the previous chapters so we can all be up to speed. Um, Joseph's story starts in the book of Genesis, chapter 37, and it starts when Joseph is 17 years old. And what happens is his brothers are quite jealous of him. They want to get rid of him. They even want to kill him. But they decide instead to sell him off to an Egyptian slave trader. And then they deceive their father, Jacob, into thinking that Joseph was attacked by a wild animal and killed. So Joseph, when he gets to Egypt, is eventually thrown into prison for something he didn't do, where he's abandoned, where he's forgotten about. And eventually what happens in the story is Joseph gets the opportunity to interpret a couple of Pharaoh's dreams. And not only does God give Joseph the interpretation for these dreams, but God makes it so that Pharaoh puts Joseph second in command of all of Egypt. And so he's in charge And a severe famine happens, just as Joseph predicted it would, a seven-year famine. And because God gave Joseph the wisdom and the the foresight and the discipline to plan for it, uh, 
Joseph creates a storehouse of grain, and all of the surrounding nations are coming to Egypt. They're coming to Egypt to buy grain to avoid starvation, and that includes Joseph's brothers and his Hebrew family. Now, they don't know that Joseph is second in command. They don't know that uh, he is where he is. And so when they go to buy grain, um, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. In, in the middle chapters of the story, what you find is this big game of cat and mouse that Joseph plays. He's, he, he recognizes his brothers. His brothers don't recognize him. And finally, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And you can imagine they're uh, terrified and shocked. But as Ian mentioned last week in his sermon, The Art of Weeping, Joseph, through many tears, forgives his brothers, and he's reconciled with them. And he essentially tells his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. In other words, he says to them, with God, the, the, the worst thing is never the last thing. And then what happens, which leads us to chapter 46, is Pharaoh invites Joseph's family, his dad Jacob and all his brothers, to come live in Egypt where they're going to be cared for, taken care of, and he, they're going to be given the best piece of land in all of Egypt called the land of Goshen, and they're going to be reunited together as a family, a new family. And that leads us to chapter 46. So let me read the couple opening verses of the chapter, and we'll go from there. Genesis chapter 46, verse 1. So Jacob set out for Egypt with all his possessions. And when he came to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. During the night, God spoke to him in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he called. Here I am, Jacob replied. I am God, the God of your father, the voice said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make your family into a great nation. I will go with you down to Egypt. And so God tells Jacob, Joseph's dad, He's, he's getting ready to pack all of his belongings, his enormous family, and they're going to go to Egypt. And God tells Jacob in a dream, in a vision at night, not to be afraid. And so the question we have to ask is, why would Jacob be afraid to go to Egypt? There's grain in Egypt. Not where he is, but there's grain in Egypt. He also had just found out that his son Joseph is alive. And not only is he alive, but he is second in command of all of Egypt, directly under Pharaoh. The Pharaoh himself has invited Jacob and his entire family to come there. He's giving them the very best piece of land in all of Egypt, the land of Goshen. So why would Jacob be afraid? What's there to be afraid of? Well, we're told why later in the chapter. So let's pick up there, and I'm going to invite Matt to come up. He's going to read this passage of Scripture for us, starting in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 46. And I want, while he's reading, I want you to pay attention and see, why would Jacob be afraid? So listen to these words as he reads them. As they neared their destination, Jacob sent Judah ahead to meet Joseph and to get directions to the region of Goshen. And when they finally arrived there, Joseph prepared his chariot and traveled to Goshen to meet his father, Jacob. When Joseph arrived, he embraced his father and wept, holding him for a long time. Finally, Jacob said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen your face again and know you are still alive. 
And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's entire family, I will go to Pharaoh and tell him, My brothers and my father's entire family have come to me from the land of Canaan. These men are shepherds, and they raise livestock. They have brought with them their flocks and herds and everything they own. Then he said, When Pharaoh calls for you and asks you about your occupation, you must tell him, We, your servants, have raised livestock all our lives, as our ancestors have always done. When you tell him this, he will let you live here in the region of Goshen, for the Egyptians despise shepherds. So, so here we have Joseph, and he's, he's heading his family off at the pass. Right? They're coming into Egypt, and, he, and, he, and he's, he goes and meets them in Goshen, and he coaches his entire family. He, see, here's what Joseph recognizes, that even though God was at work in, his, in this story, he was reconciling and breaking down walls of hostility. Even though God had revealed himself to Pharaoh through these dreams, and Pharaoh had invited Joseph's family and welcomed them, the Hebrews, and, and shown hospitality toward them by giving them the best piece of land in all of Egypt, Joseph makes it a point to meet his family before they get settled. He makes it a point before they settle in to, to let them know that things might look fine on the surface, but they're not. Because underneath there's a culture of, of hostility, of racial hostility that they're going to experience. And, and the, the final verse of the chapter says this, the Egyptians despise shepherds. But it, it, it goes much deeper than that. Because when Joseph's brothers first arrived in Egypt, way back in Genesis chapter 43, we're told that the Egyptians' hatred was not only directed at shepherds. Let me read this verse to you from Genesis 43, verse 32. Listen to this. The waiters served Joseph at his own table, and his brothers were served at a separate table. The Egyptians who ate with Joseph sat at their own table, because Egyptians despise Hebrews and refuse to eat with them. And so Joseph here meets his family in Goshen to let them know that, that even though they've been welcomed by Pharaoh, even though there's a... There's, um, a, a place for them, there's also a culture of hostility and racism that, that they need to be aware of and they need to talk about it. Joseph is essentially meeting his family and saying, we need to talk about this before you get settled. Because there's, there's a low-grade buzz of hostility underneath that you, you need to listen for. And Joseph makes it a point to let, them, to let his family know that the Egyptians believed they were better better than the Hebrews. And while they tolerated Joseph and they tolerated his family being there, um, the hostility and hatred was still there buzzing in the background, right? See, at the core of, of racism is the lie that some people are superior or inferior to others. And Joseph names this. He calls it out and, and he warns his brothers. He tells his family, yes, God started this work of reconciliation. He, he gave Pharaoh dreams and he orchestrated it so that I would be the one to interpret the dreams. And, and God gave the interpretation and Pharaoh's heart is, is There's some work that's happening. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's heart is changing. He's invited you to come. He's giving you the best land of all in, Go in all of Goshen and all of Egypt. But there's a long, long way to go before there's true reconciliation. And I think it's safe to say that, and we've said this throughout this series, that in a lot of ways, Joseph's story is our story. 
And I think that's safe to say here as well because while God desires racial reconciliation and justice and invites us into that work, we have a long, long way to go. Amen? I have to preach longer now because I only heard one whisper, amen. (laughs) But it's the work that God himself is committed to. Listen to this verse in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9, at the end of the age. It says this, that there's going to be a great multitude standing before the throne of God, and it's comprised of every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. That's what God's plan is. It's creating a new family, a, way, a new way of belonging together. Every nation, tongue, tribe, worshiping together before the throne of God. That's his plan, right? Well, what we find later on in the story of Joseph is this, that for the next 70 years, they do the hard work of reconciliation. But the day comes when there's a new pharaoh. Joseph had died. His friend, the pharaoh, had died. There's a new pharaoh that comes to power. And this new pharaoh knew nothing about Joseph and what he had done. And it became afraid that the Hebrews were going to take over Egypt. And so they enslaved them. And it's a tragic turn in their history, all because they were unwilling to continue the work God started. And instead, they chose further fragmentation and racism and injustice and violence and slavery. And I share, I share all that to say this, that I'm convinced that the American church specifically needs to continue to the work of racial reconciliation that God is doing and that God started. And I understand it's complex, right? It, it's more complex than we probably care to admit. It's a multifaceted problem. And it's not just overt racism, right? Like the shootings that we saw this last week in Buffalo and Laguna Woods, that's easy to see. It's overt, right? It's It's an overt hate crime and racism, and you can see that. But there's also covert racism, right, which is harder to identify because It includes individual racial prejudice, it includes discrimination, it includes institutional racism and systemic racism and all a myriad of other things. And I have to confess this, as a white pastor, I don't have answers. Um, I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to respond the same as you. But what I do believe as as a pastor is this, that, that part of the process of racial reconciliation is forming some habits and some disciplines that can shape the way we interact with people of different racial backgrounds. And so Pastor Rich Velotis, in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, offers several habits or several disciplines to help us engage the work of racial reconciliation. And I want to share a few of these habits with you because I think they're helpful for me. And I understand this morning, I'm, I'm preaching as a white person to a predominantly white church, an all-white church, right? And so I, I, I want to submit these in a, in, a, in a humble way, and I would love it if you received them in a humble way. So let me give you some habits and disciplines that can help us engage the work of, of racial reconciliation. The first one is the habit of remembering And Pastor Rich in his book says that we can't understand the current experience of racial hostility 
without first facing our history. And there's a long history, right? Whether it's oppression experienced by Native Americans when we took their land, whether it's oppression experienced by African Americans when we enslaved them to build our economy, or the, the following centuries of, of lynching and segregation and redlining, and the list goes on and on. Until we honestly wrestle with our history, we're not going to be able to find reconciliation. And so the habit of remembering, yet all throughout Scripture, God tells his people, remember when you were in Egypt. Remember when you were at this place in your life. Remember this part of your history. And so the habit of remembering is something God commands us to do all throughout Scripture, and that's something we have to, to commit ourselves to. The second habit is the habit of incarnational listening. And, and what I mean by incarnational listening is the discipline and the habit of being present and listening to others even when it's hard. Even when it's hard, right? It, it's, it's the practice of listening to other people's experiences and stories without being dismissive. It, it's setting aside our own perspective to make room in our hearts for another person's perspectives. And, and this is hard for us. Listening is hard for us for a lot of reasons, uh, but the, the primary reason that listening is hard for us is because we equate listening with agreeing. We equate, equate listening with agreement, and, and so we often quit listening to someone the moment we hear something that we might question or disagree with or have a different perspective, and we stop listening, and immediately what do we do? We start thinking of what we're going to say as soon as there's a pause. We stop listening then. Or we start thinking, how am I going to counteract, counteract this perspective with the perspective I have? And we stop listening then. And so until we're, we're, until we're first willing to deeply listen, we'll never find reconciliation. The third habit is the habit of lament. And unfortunately, lament is a lost art in our society because it's been replaced with moral outrage. Right? You know what I mean by moral outrage. Moral outrage is when we have a, a bunch of discomforting emotions. Maybe we're really sad or angry about something, and, and, and it's uncomfortable, and we don't like it, and so we, ah, right? There's this moral, we, 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 we explode, or we go to social media, and we post something, and a lot of times, there's something behind that, right? And it's, it's seeking after catharsis. Because when we, when we sit with these difficult things and these hard things that cause emotional distress, we, we, we unintentionally look to, to get some relief from those emotions, which leads to this moral outrage culture, right, where we just like, boom. And what lament is, is lament is more than posting on social media to get some relief from our emotions. Lament forces us to sit with the discomfort of our emotions. And we see lament all through Scripture. Read the Psalms. Read the book of Lamentations. It's a whole book of lament. Read the prophets. They lament. And what lament, how lament is different than moral outrage is many times moral outrage, we're just looking for some cathartic release. But in lament, you choose to stay in the pain, to stay in the discomfort and sit with it and discern God's direction. Right? When, when you lament, when you read the Psalms, you'll see it. it. It leads to compassion and confession, not catharsis. Lament leads us to a, a, a response. 
but you first have to sit in it. And so we have to somehow practice the art of lament again as a people, as God's people. We have to learn how when something is, is disturbing and, 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 and difficult that we just need, no, no, I, I, I'm going to sit with the discomfort of these emotions and pray and talk to God and discern his direction and, and pour out my heart in a way that, that is responsive to what God's doing, what God wants to be done. Uh, another habit that we need to employ and adopt is the habit of reconciling prayer. Um, I believe that the racial hostility in our world is too deep to make significant process apart from prayer. That we're not going to make significant progress <laughs> apart from prayer. Because I, I, prayer does two things. One, it, it keeps us from relying on our own efforts. And two, it keeps us from despair. It keeps us from resignation. Because when we pray, we're, we do what Jesus did. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and those, that, that prayer right there, it, it, it does something. It, it keeps us from relying on our own efforts, and it keeps us from despair. Uh, Pastor Rich Velotis says this about prayer, that prayer is a steadfast refusal to give ourselves over to either self-reliance or resignation. Let me read that again. Prayer is a steadfast refusal to give ourselves over to either self-reliance or resignation. See, sometimes um, when, when something difficult happens, people don't know what to say. They say, oh, I'm sending prayers or thoughts and prayers. And, and there's, there's a recent response to that, like, who cares about your thoughts and prayers? And I just want to counterbalance that because I believe that prayers matter. Yes, there should be response and action, but don't diminish prayer. See, prayer is not a way to ignore the problem, but to help us engage it from a deeper place. That's what prayer does. So don't let anybody tell you that, that praying about these, these issues doesn't matter, only response. No, prayer allows us to engage it from a deeper place because it allows us to be on co-mission with God, right? Where we're not in despair, but we're also uh, not res in resignation, but we're also... Uh, not relying on our own efforts, that we're going to cooperate with God and his kingdom. The last habit that I want to submit to you is the habit of self-examination. And this, of course, is, is the, the discipline of inspecting our hearts, of examining our assumptions and our biases that are in our hearts. Can I share a humiliating story and a public confession? Some of my friends love it when I share embarrassing things about me. Um, after the outset of the COVID pandemic, remember when everything shut down? Nobody could go to work. Nobody could do anything, and some people weren't getting paid. And there was this moment where, like, we didn't know what was going to happen financially, right? The government hadn't put a package together yet, and there, there was a lot of stress. And, and I, as a pastor, reached out to some friends and folks in our church who I knew their financial situation was bad before COVID. Like before they couldn't go to work, I knew their situation was bad. And so the first couple weeks of the pandemic, as a pastor, um, I would just was calling these people who I knew um, had some financial stress before this and were probably wondering, how am I going to get through this period of time? 
And, and as a church, we have a financial assistance program. Which we, we, we have a fund that we help people with groceries and gas and just some necessities. And we've been doing that for a number of years. And it was really leaned upon at the outside of the pandemic. And um, I had reached out to some folks, and it felt really good as a pastor. It's kind of, hey, our church, like, you know, we have this fund, and we just want to, I want to buy you some groceries and put some gas in your car. And if there's anything else that you need, you know, we'd love to, like, pray with you and help. But... But I also did this, and this is so embarrassing to say, but I also had a couple black friends who I reached out to and I didn't know their financial situation. And it was really prejudice in my heart that was disguised by pastoral concern. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. It wasn't until um, the killing of George Floyd, I was doing some self-examination, right? And God showed me what I couldn't see on my own that there was a residue of racism in my heart that I didn't see because I had made the assumption, oh, these black friends of mine, they're probably in need of financial assistance. That's, that's the residue of racism, friends. And I didn't see it. It's in my own heart. So I had to reach out to my, to my friends and repent and ask for forgiveness. And they were so gracious with me, I didn't deserve it. And they were. And I share that story to say this. When we do the, the, the work of self-examination, when we practice the habit of self-examination, looking in our hearts, asking God to show us what we can't even see is there, when we do that work, it is hard. And it's painful. But until God shows us the ways we've been deformed in our thinking toward other people, then we're not going to be part of reconciliation and his reconciling work. Now, we don't have time this morning together as a congregation to practice all of these habits, uh, but I thought we'd close with one. We're going to close with a reconciling prayer. And I'm going to invite um, Chris and Tracy to come up. They're going to lead us in this prayer. The worship band, you can come up too. And let me tell you a little bit about the prayer we're going to pray this morning. This prayer was written by a pastor for his congregation in 2017 after a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Do you remember that? Do you remember when that rally happened in Charlottesville in 2017? And, and it led into a weekend of violence and racial fragmentation all around the country. I think there was a, a person in Ohio who got in a truck and just mowed down people killing, it was just, it was awful, right? And so this pastor that same weekend wrote this prayer to pray with his congregation. And as I read this prayer, I was like, wow, what a fitting prayer for us to pray. It's just one week ago, you know, there were these shootings. And, and it, it, again, it just reminds us that there is this buzz, low-grade hum that's just in the background all the time that why God is doing the work of reconciliation, um, while it's happening, we got a long, long way to go, right? And so we're going to pray this prayer together, and I believe next week we're going to have this prayer printed out to, to hand to folks in our congregation, um, but we're going to pray it together, and I want to, I want to ask you to just uh, close your eyes and, and, and agree in prayer with as Christian Tracy lead us in this prayer. We don't have projection today to put this prayer up on the screen, but um, allow God to just uh, project it on your hearts and minds, and then we'll sing together. Lord Jesus, your kingdom is good news.
for a world caught in racial hostility. We ask that you give us grace for the deep challenges our country faces. We confess our anger, our deep sadness, and our collective sense of weakness to see this world healed through our own strength. We honestly confess that our country has a long history of racial oppression, that racism has been a strategy of evil powers and principalities infected by structural sin. We confess that the gospel is good news for the oppressed and the oppressor. Both are raised up, both are liberated, but in different ways. The oppressed are raised up from the harsh burden of inferiority and the oppressor from the destructive illusion of superiority. We confess that the gospel is your power to form a new people not identified by dominance and superiority, but by unity in the spirit. We ask that you help us name our part in this country's story of racial oppression and hostility. Whether we have sinned against others by seeing them as inferior or have been silent in the face of evil, forgive us our sin. We pray for our enemies, for those who have allowed satanic powers to work through them. Grant them deliverance through your mighty power. Lord, we ask that you form us to be peacemakers. May we be people who speak the truth in love as we work for a reconciled world. Lord, we commit our lives to you, believing that you are working in the world in spite of destructive powers and principalities. Bring healing to those who are hurt, peace to those who are anxious, and love to those who are fearful. We wait for you, Lord. Make haste to help us. O oh Lord, only you can make all things new. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.